As you figured out by now, Chris is out of town this weekend, enjoying some quality time and sunshine with family members. So it's my privilege to be with you today. I'm Jennifer, most of you probably know me, but in case you don't, um, my family and I have been around for a good 12 years or so here at Letter Street. During that time, I very slowly did uh, MDev at Regent College, and uh, Abby's got me beat hollow for getting through it quickly. <laughs> And I did the same supervised ministry a couple years ago. It seems like a couple years ago, probably it was more like five or six. See, see, <laughs> the time, what, what is time? Um, <laughs> that Abby is doing right now. And then um, I haven't been able to say yes for a long time. It's just been a really busy season when Chris has asked me to fill in. So I'm just really pleased that I could do so tonight and be with you. And hello to you folks at home, we miss you. Um, so those of you who have been around and know me for a little while, We'll probably agree that I am kind of a nerd. Yeah, that's a, okay, understatement. And one aspect of my nerddom is that I really enjoy classical music. I think this goes back to, it, it started, or, or at least it was in evidence, in fifth grade, I got a clock radio with a tape player in it for my birthday. I got three tapes, and they were Beethoven's Fifth and Sixth Symphonies, uh, some sort of selection of Baroque favorites, and something with the glorious name of the top 15 of 1750. And how much delight I took in that also confirms my nerddom. <laughs> One of the things, first things you'll learn if you, as I began to do, if you attend concerts of classical music, is that many of the pieces have multiple parts or movements. So as Lydia said, as we listened to my nephew's really amazing piano recital this week, and it was on Zoom, but we were applauding in between the pieces, so we got to where it seemed like he stopped. I said, don't clap yet. She said, wait, there's more? But oh yeah, there's more. So in the live concert, when we go back to those, it's especially important to know you don't clap between those movements, right? So if the conductor, the music seems to have stopped, but the conductor's still holding up her baton and hasn't stepped away, hold your applause, because there's more. So music nerds like me appreciate these extended pieces with their complex construction. It's really quite elegant. Each movement has its own character, and yet they echo each other and they fit together into a whole that's quite beautiful and has variation and recall and communicates certain themes. Okay, funny story on me. When I was about 15, I really got a cool opportunity with my youth orchestra. We got to play this piece called Mahler's First Symphony. It is a vast, epic piece that runs almost an hour in length. That's long, even for a symphony. In four movements with different charactered each one, so it starts like these long harmonic chords, and then the second movement is this waltz-like, dancey, light kind of thing, and then the third movement, he called a funeral for Cock Robin, so it's a minor version of Frere Jacques, <laughs> really slow cello kind of chords, and then the fourth movement is just off the charts. It starts with like this cymbal crash and shrieking strings, and if you can imagine, it builds from there to this huge triumphant brass theme that in the final instance the horns get to take. And I was a French horn. So the horns have such a big role in this symphony that there were nine of us when we played this piece. So we're in our retreat for the winter. We're at Warm Beach Conference Center. Anybody been over there? So instead of a band or orchestra room where the, the whole room is often kind of slanted so everybody can see, they had us in the back on these risers. They're like four feet by eight foot, just simple little wood kind of things. 
several of them because there's so many of us, and we're sitting back there. Saturday night, we're finally playing through the whole symphony for the first time. That feels good, right? We're not stopping for anything. And there's this tradition. When you get to that place in the symphony, the entire horn section stands up with your, your hand in the bell, right? So we get to that spot in the symphony, and right on cue, we all stood up, discovered we needed like an extra foot of space between us and our music stands, and all our chairs went flying off the back of the risers. <laughs> you know what? We didn't stop, because you don't, you don't stop that music for just a little boom crash. You don't do that. <laughs> but it was always memorable. Playing that whole symphony was actually a memorable highlight of my teen years. It's one of those things I will never forget getting to participate in. Suffice it to say, I think the individual we're about to meet in today's story will never, would never forget the first day he encountered and moved toward Jesus. Let's read together their encounter. We're in the fifth chapter of John's Gospel in your pew Bible. It's page 1067. And I'll invite you to take a stretch and stand with me while we hear God's word. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, well, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they said, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, we are thankful for this opportunity to sit and steep our hearts and our minds in this story. And Holy Spirit, we may have arrived today with thoughts buzzing, just busy with the plans we need to make and the tasks we need to accomplish and the worries we think we need to tend to. So I ask you to clear space for us right now. Calm and quiet our hearts in your presence so we can rest. Help us to embrace this, this set-aside time for your word. And as we do, I pray that each one here will encounter you, Jesus, anew and afresh in your ever-present mercy. Amen. 
But thankfully, this little story takes a lot less than an hour to read. That would be long. But there's a great deal happening, and so I'm proposing that we see it as four stages of this man's movement toward Jesus. Because at the beginning of the story, he is so stuck. Not only does his body not work, but as we will see, he's also stuck in a belief about God and himself and others that doesn't serve him or allow him to affect any change in his circumstances. And yet it's in that immobilization, right in his stuckness, that Jesus meets him and initiates the emotions that will take him from paralysis into freedom. But before I trace through those four, let's take just a few minutes to set the scene and then maybe clear up a few potential difficulties. John takes some care here to establish his location. He says, in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, at the pool, which his name in Aramaic is Bethesda, um, and then uh, he describes how all these people in need of healing would gather there. As a general principle, if the Bible writers take a lot of time to give you the specifics of time and place and seasons, things like that, then likely it will benefit us to take some time to unpack the significance of that information. So if you were a first century reader familiar with these locations, you might not have to take much time. It would kind of happen automatically, right? Like, uh, just think for a second, locals here, of the different scene that you would imagine if you hear these descriptions. Ruth's going to have a few pictures for me. Um, she went kayaking yesterday on Lake Whatcom, right? Okay, here's another one. How does this strike you differently? She went kayaking yesterday on Whatcom Creek. <laughs> That's a pretty different vibe, right? And if you were um, in the same milieu as the writer, that would kind of just happen. Um, for a first century Jewish person, for instance, if they heard about Jesus healing a blind man at the Pool of Siloam, which he does a few chapters later in John, they would have immediately this image of, oh yeah, that's that huge reservoir below the Temple Mount where the pilgrims stop on their way up to the temple, and it's, it's intimately involved with the worship of Israel's God, Yahweh. But for us, being that we're pretty removed in time and place and culture from all of this. It takes a little more effort, and sometimes it takes a little extra effort because layers have actually sort of clouded this information for us over the centuries. I think something a bit like that has happened to this story. So John describes this interesting place that has like five roofed rows of columns, or porticos. Because of that, for years in Jerusalem, as they excavated, archaeologists looked for like a pentagonal structure. And they didn't find it, so they said, oh, well, um, John is smoking something. Like literally they thought, well, maybe he's being symbolic. Five colonnades stands for like the five books of Torah or something, and it's not beyond the John's gospel to be really deep in its symbolism. So, okay, fine, but it doesn't really like build our confidence in the, the literal sense of scripture. Only really recently, like a decade, has a site likely been identified, and I'll have Ruth put that one up too. Oh, we're still looking at, yeah. The site has been identified near a crusader church. And now we can start to see why they were having trouble. It, it requires lateral thinking, kind of like those brain teaser puzzles, where you're like, um, take away four toothpicks and still leave two squares, and you know they're not gonna be the same size squares. It needs that kind of thinking. Because what they're actually are, we'll show us the second one, we'll just, 
here's the kind of the depth of this pool, but what they're actually have revealed to be, revealed to be are two pools with a portico in between them. And here is is in a model that kind of shows the reconstruction of Jerusalem. So there you go, one, two, three, four, five sides. And the author of the gospel actually knew his place and what he was talking about. It seems, from what we can tell, that the lower pool had a platform with steps going down into it, so it was intended for bathing, ritual bathing, going down into. And the upper pool is deeper and was probably like a reservoir that held the water. And it may even be that opening a a gate or dam between the two is what would cause this movement of the waters as fresh water flows into the lower pool. So that's the site. Another problem which may be bothering some of you right now, depending on maybe the version of the Bible you grew up with, is that there has been an addition of an extra verse to this passage over centuries of copying. A verse that purports to explain what's going on at the pool, but actually has probably made it harder for readers to understand what's really going on in the story. If you are familiar with like the King James Version, you would see a verse in the place of verse 4, and it would say, Now there was an angel who went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. But if you were paying attention, as you looked through the NIV, in most modern versions, you will not see verse 4 at all. Verse 3, verse 5, just like that. Because we now have older, better manuscripts than the King James translators had available to them. They were doing the best they could with what they had, But we have older and better versions, and this verse simply isn't in the older versions. And when it shows up, it shows up with a little asterisk kind of sign. It's basically the copyist saying, um, I don't really think this is original, but I also don't want to be the one responsible for taking it out. (laughs) So I'm going to just kind of like bracket it off and tell you that, um, well, our Bibles really still do this, right? Some of the disputed verses come in brackets to tell us, we didn't want to take it out, but we're not sure it, ma- it belongs in. Um, so it's, the textual evidence for it is very poor. And just the most likely explanation is, some generations after this is first written, when people are less familiar with the scenario, some scribe thinks that he needs to explain, hey, what is the situation going on at this pool, and writes a little marginal note, giving his explanation, and then it gets copied into the text. You can see how that works pretty easily. Um, And unfortunately, the scribe didn't seem to actually have that great an understanding, and so he's left readers with this impression that there's this kind of like weird magical power attached to this pool with its angel um, for healing, and then also that it's this oddly competitive system (laughs) where the only the first and fastest guy to hop in (laughs) is going to get healed. So they're all uh, situated against each other. Which, if you think about it, is not particularly consistent with the rest of Scripture or the character of Israel's God that we know. So archaeology comes in handy one more time. And I'll I'll stop nerding out over this very soon, but there's one more thing. These excavations this last ten years at the pool have revealed a really interesting detail. Right next to these pools, it seems that there was an active healing shrine in a Greco-Roman or pagan tradition. Maybe to the god Asclepius, who is the patron of medicine and healing in the Mediterranean world. His symbol was the snake, and the, you know those intertwined snakes like, um, are still the symbol for medicine everywhere today? Those come from Asclepius. So we found some snakes and some evidence 
not actual snakes, like images of snakes, <laughs> and some evidence of this kind of cultivation of a, a healing place, a popular healing place at these pools. Um, and as, you know, people would do all kinds of things at these shrines of Asclepius. In some places they would, um, not in this one necessarily, but they would like sleep for the night to try to get a dream so that God would tell them how to be healed. Or they might make an image of a body part in clay, or if they could afford it, like a better metal, so like a, a foot or a hand or an elbow or really any part you can think of, and uh, offer it to the god in exchange for this healing that they were seeking. It was really, really popular, as you can imagine, in a time without really much medical care or hospitals. So, a little help from our friends, the archaeologists, and their study of old rocks, we can see how all these little details John gives us start to come together into a single picture. The pool is a spot where the desperate, hoping for divine healing gather. Um, and John says its name in Aramaic means basically house of mercy. And they are looking for mercy, but not necessarily through any particular connection or faith in Israel's God. And that's where our story takes off. This fellow part of the crowd, at this pagan, or at the very least kind of syncretic, mushing things together, semi-pagan, semi-Jewish place, seeking healing by whatever means they can. And the first movement toward his healing is just this. The man was lying there, and Jesus saw him. Jesus found him. Jesus knew him. John gives us another detail. He's been an invalid for 38 years. That's easily a first century lifetime. Like we don't know whether he was born this way or had an accident or what happened, but that's, that's a life's worth for people that people could expect to live at that time. How long had he half-heartedly sought healing at that spot? How long had he bought into this notion Maybe the scribe was mistaken, but it seems to reflect his mindset that healing was a limited good. There was only enough mercy at the pool for the fastest and the strongest to grab the opportune moment. How long since he'd given up thinking that he was ever going to have a shot at it? Have you ever felt just that stuck? Like longing for healing in some aspect of your life, but just powerless to do anything about it. The good news here, friends, is that this guy was absolutely stuck in the wrong spot, believing the wrong thing, and yet Jesus found him. Jesus initiated the encounter. It's pretty remarkable because we have no end of stories in the Gospels where people are, like, pressing in on Jesus for healing, right? They're, like, crying out to him from the side of the road and thinking, okay, maybe if I just could reach out through this crowd and touch his cloak— I could get healed. They're usually coming after him. And so this is kind of the rare instance in which before this man was ever looking for Jesus, before he decided to place any faith in Yahweh for healing, literally before he made a single move in the story, Jesus was there. And Jesus knew him. He knew his suffering. He knew his need for wholeness. His whole situation. That's the entire first movement. Hold your applause. In the second movement, Jesus again initiates an encounter. And just this one, like, simple but devastatingly penetrating question, he probes the state 
of the man's soul. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? It seems that that should be a pretty straightforward answer. Like, uh, of course. Like, why did you think I was hanging out here? It wasn't for the suntan. But what he says by way of his answer is actually pretty complex. It's kind of equal parts complaint and defensiveness and just despondency, right? I can't get healed because I have nobody to put me in the water. And there's only this little bit of healing to go around. And to be honest, when I speak with God about the areas where I'm longing for healing and wholeness and movement in my life, my part of the conversation sounds more like this than I'd like to admit. Do you want to get well? Yes. I think so? Maybe. Without minimizing, we don't want to spiritualize like too much, so I don't want to minimize the fact that like this man literally needed a physical healing in his body to get up and be able to be a productive member of society, right? And at the same time, I want to suggest that when we've sat in a place of unwellness for a long time, as he had, whatever form of healing it is that we need can feel like a bit of a dangerous blessing. Because to be healed requires us to grow out of the identities we have crafted for ourselves as broken people and give up those dysfunctions that simultaneously grate on us and somehow we have also learned to live with and make peace with. Like, what will it cost me to become what I'm made to be? Like, if I'm healed, will more be expected of me? What familiar patterns might I no longer get to use or have use for? Do I really, do I really long for wholeness more than I fear change and staying the same? Jesus' question goes to all of that. And besides those difficulties, it can be hard just to know what we want. Our reading from Psalm 37 encourages us with that great verse that delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What is it, though, that we truly desire? It's harder work than we like to think to sort out our true God-given, authentic yearnings, which I think God longs to meet us in and satisfy. From those like temporary urges that we often yield to, or even worse, the things we go to to numb the pain of the actual longings that are unmet in our life. What is the longing beneath the longings? That's not easy work. But Jesus' question brings it to the surface. An encounter with Jesus is an invitation to be honest with ourselves about what we truly desire. To begin that purifying, sorting out and teasing out that God wants to do with us. By beginning the relationship with this question, Jesus brings to light the mixed and uncertain state of the guy's heart and ours. And hallelujah, Jesus is not the least bit put off by that. Can I get an amen? Yes. <laughs> the, I've been doing a yoga program, a 30 days program. I'm like um, 15 days behind, by the way, but that's okay. We'll talk about that later. Um, it has been reflecting partly on this uh, dictum that Eugene Peterson has. It says, we can only pray as who we are, not as who we wish we were. 
or who we think we should be. Um, this guy's answer might strike us as a little whiny, as fretful, like a far cry from the robust, confident faith we wish we could present, but he is us, and we are ourselves, and Jesus is not surprised. And that's pretty good news. And so begins the third movement, and this is where things really start to get interesting. Jesus doesn't even engage his complaining, despondency, wrong belief, any of it, really. He just gives this shocking instruction, get up, take your bed, walk. And up until this point, it really has not been a question of this man's faith. It wasn't his goodness or virtue that attracted Jesus' attention, and it certainly wasn't a Sunday school answer that qualified him for healing. But now in this kind of mystery of the moment, there is a kind of call to decision, to action. What do you do when someone tells you to do the thing that you can't do? Does he want to be healed? Why should he trust this person, this stranger who just walked up and started asking fairly personal questions? Who does that guy think he is anyway? I just imagine that in the moment, there had to be, there had to be something magnetic, authoritative about Jesus' presence. Something about his command that outweighed his fear of looking foolish or of having it fail of trying like he had tried many times before. Something about his presence that made what otherwise would sound like maybe mockery, like get up and walk, like seem like a legitimate possibility. It makes sense because Jesus' words are not ordinary words. These are the words of the God who could speak a universe into being. So Jesus' word is a vehicle of power that actually enables its hearers to do what it commands. So at once, he was healed. I feel like this is a good picture of the mysterious way that God brings us into salvation, right? On the one hand, according to the text, he is healed, like his limbs are strengthened before he makes a move. But on the other hand, it's also true that he must move to realize this new reality he's in. Like they're, they're both there in this mysterious intertwining that cannot be pulled apart. So in obedience, he moves to rise. Yeah, he finds he can not only stand, he can pick up his bed and carry it off, and that's just what he does. Is it over yet? No. We're just getting started on the final movement, and it's a doozy. It's the big one where the gospel writer is going to spend most of the words, like half the words in the whole story, fourth movement. Because there is a small complication. All of this seems to happen on the Sabbath day. Oh, and there's a law that you cannot carry anything anywhere, more than maybe a few steps, on the Sabbath day, because that would be work, and we can't work on the Sabbath. So right away, as it seems, as he's walking off with his bed under his arm, he's accosted by some good, law-abiding Jews saying, what are you doing? It's like so obvious to them, you can't do that. And his response is like, well, that guy. Like, he appeals to Jesus' authority, even though it now turns out he doesn't even know his name. The guy who healed me, he told me to take up my bed and walk. So even more obvious in his mind is that if this guy has this authority to heal my body, then I should probably obey him if he tells me to pick up the bed. And it's that controversy which plays into John's 
bigger picture, but for now we will just call it the context for this final movement, this final encounter with Jesus, which is that at some later time, it just says afterward, Jesus finds him again in the temple. Okay, by this point, you should not be surprised that it is Jesus who finds him, right? If you are, you might have been sleeping. At every step, it has been Jesus who made the first move, right? And the location of this encounter in the temple suggests the multifaceted nature of this man's healing. Jesus never just heals bodies, right? I mean, first of all, it means his body is strong and well because it's a climb to get from where he was up to the Temple Mount, okay? So he's healthy and strong. And then he's socially restored to this full participation in the Jewish community, And he's spiritually restored because in his thankfulness, now he's orienting toward the worship of Yahweh in a way he may not have been doing before. It's this package deal. And so fittingly, it's in the temple that Jesus reveals himself to the man who has been healed. Here, here I am. I'm the one who healed you. My very name is God saves. That's who I am. It's not the moment of physical healing, but the revelation of Jesus that's the climax, the chairs flying back, of this piece. And in the same breath that he reveals his identity, Jesus invites the man into a new kind of life. See, you are well. Go and sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. Sounds a little intimidating. We want to be careful here. Because Jesus is not saying that sin caused his illness. He deals with that question quite decisively in another chapter of the same gospel. And I really don't think he's even saying that he'll somehow lose his healing if he sins again. I think Jesus is saying that not to live fully into this new life that has been made possible for him, this spiritual, physical, emotional, social package deal, Not to do that would be a state more tragic than never having been healed at all. Jesus doesn't save us just so we can check a box. You're like, been there, done that, salvation, and then keep on going just being who we were. The release from our weakness or brokenness or despondency is always for something. It's for growing in holiness. It's for participating in new creation. It's for being a witness to who God is and like what he's up to in the world. And if it seems just as impossible to just go stop sinning, just just do that, as it did for a paralyzed man to pick up his bed and walk, that's kind of the point. Just as surely as his healing and his new life as a witness of Jesus depended on that living, active word that can produce what it commands, Just as surely, our life of moving toward Jesus depends on that effective word of God to us in our particular circumstances, wherever you are working out faith, right now, today. Some of you might have heard, I know Chris talked about it a bit last fall, that last summer, I did a cool thing and took a course to become a certified instructor in a Christ-centered form of yoga. Um, It's a wonder, it's not my so you might, if you, if you have red alarms going off on that, talk to me later. I'd love to talk to you about it, okay? But it's a beautiful devotional practice, bringing your body and your soul together. 
um, and with discernment. So it's, it's intended on Jesus. And so it occurs to me, since I've been practicing this, that the movements toward Jesus that this story invites us into are more than a little bit like a yoga flow. So flow is kind of yoga jargon for just this, a sequence of actions that we link smoothly together with the movement and the breath, and then typically repeat several times over in one practice. And each time you repeat them, it might feel a little different as, as muscles warm up and blood starts to flow. We create this space for God to speak to our hearts. Just like that, I feel like this story invites us into a Jesus-led, grace-filled sequence of movements of the soul that draw us continually nearer to Jesus as we flow through them. After all, just when we find freedom and movement in like one area, we may begin to realize how stuck we are in some other aspect of our lives. So it's not a one-time deal. It's something you can go around again. And if you find yourself stuck again, you can start there. And if you're somewhere else on that journey, Jesus will find you there. So just invite you as you think about this story, what movement, if any, do you find yourself in today? Are you feeling a sense of stuckness? Are you hearing God invite you to the hard work of sorting out what you truly desire? Maybe you feel that unique moment of hovering at a point of decision just before the commitment to action that Jesus is calling you to. Or maybe you're giving thanks for the goodness of God and hearing his call to walk in new life. Whichever one it is, Jesus sees. Jesus knows. Jesus is working. And Jesus is calling you to wholeness. Any of those places you may be in is a beautiful place of mercy from which to move toward Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you initiate. You do not depend on us moving first. Pray for each person to be met by you as we continue, as we come to your table, as we worship in music and song. Speak to our hearts and let this word settle there and move us closer to you. Amen.